Greetings from the Long Island Sound podcast. Welcome to the show. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. And call our listener line and leave a message for our guests. Dial 631-800-3579. All right, enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. Gene Casey's voice captivates as it draws you into his roots rock music style. I felt honored to converse with this industry veteran. In this episode, we explore Gene's background and his band, The Lone Sharks. They're recognized as the Hamptons house band. Gene and his band have made quite a name for themselves. We'll do a deep dive into his diverse catalog as we feature four of his songs. Let's take a listen to I Love What I Do. Choose the details too It's gotta be right tonight I'm the man to hire writes verse to music is a simple definition of a troubadour. Gene Casey is our East End troubadour. 
He's been acclaimed by the Long Island Music Hall of Fame for contributions to the island's musical landscape, adding to the Long Island sound. Over the course of decades of Gene's career, he's played every roadhouse, bar, honky-tonk from Manhattan to Montauk. Along with his band, The Lone Sharks, they're also known as the house band of the Hamptons. His original music has been acclaimed locally and internationally. Several of his songs have become soundtracks to television and feature films. And with that, I welcome Gene Casey to the Long Island Sound. Welcome, Gene. Good to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for, for having me. I tell you, one of my great joys, and you've been around for a while, is discovering you, <laughs> so to speak, uh, in that um, my wife, Debbie, is a huge country fan. I'm really getting into Americana, and mm-hmm. I just love, and I hate to pigeonhole anybody into a genre, but I love the honesty of your music and what it what it brings um, to the world, healing to the world and, and honesty to the world. And that was like my first impression. Of, of, really? of your music and, and your voice. You've got such a great, uh, it's, it's almost like we plucked you out of, you know, 80 years ago out of country music. You just have, <laughs> uh, you just have this great sound. And anyway, I just want to say oh, that kind of gushing a little bit. I apologize. So, Go um, right ahead. Gush on. <laughs> <laughs> gush on. Hey, I'm going to spend 45 <laughs> minutes of gushing on Gene. <laughs> hey, that sounded horrible. Anyway. <laughs> so Gene. Well, yeah, about pigeon and, and, uh, classification and cat i mean that's just that's the bane of any musician's uh, life you know to have to describe and, and market one's self is yeah not something that i think we're very good at uh, we're too busy just doing it making the music but i understand in this day and age and really in any day and age uh, you got to reach a potential audience and uh, so you know uh, I've been called rockabilly, swing, uh, alternative country, Americana, uh, and other names, not as polite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. (laughs) But uh, people still will always say, what kind of music you guys play? What's, you know, and, you know. (laughs) It's it's, it's interesting. People almost need like these guardrails. And it, it comes down to marketing and market and seeing does, if there's a market for you. And that's just the reality of the music business. Um, but I think it's it's in the uh, ears of the beholder. You know, what did you hear in Jane's yeah. song? I heard Rockabilly. I heard Johnny Cash. I heard this. Mm-hmm. You know, I like this. That's not my thing. But, oh, man, this next song is different. And I think that's where you have that, uh, you know, broad scope where you, I at least would think a musician wants to shy away. With, hey, look, I don't want, don't put me in a very narrow category because I think my appeal is going to be a little bit broader than than what you like. But the businessmen in our life like to categorize and. I understand that. Really, I do. Put things in sets. You know, let's face it. We all have to be our own businessman these days. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Exactly. And you know, you're your own uh, your own marketer in many cases. You, you're. Uh, well, I, I equated this, and I spoke about this in another podcast, is that because of the availability of quality equipment, hey, look, I got, I'm doing a podcast. I'm no professional, right? Uh, and it comes out pretty well. Uh, is It's kind of like when they came out with the desktop printer, you know? Boom. Now now everybody can produce studio-quality right. sound. Um, not yeah. that that makes you be in the music business. Anyway, I digress. Let's do this. Let's turn back the pages a little bit. I'm really interested... In that point time in your life that you've either picked up an instrument and fell in love and said, "Hey, I can I can do this," and also when it comes to songwriting, where did where did it kind of click in for you, Gene? 
Well, it happened at the same time. Okay. Uh, learning to, to play an instrument and writing songs happened at the same time. Uh, it was the same adventure, same experience. Probably because I knew at early age that the, the Beatles uh, wrote most of their songs. And uh, that was the whole point, it seemed, that this was new and creative. Uh, I never took guitar lessons, and hmm. I, I never wanted to play the guitar just to play the guitar. I wanted just to be the total package. Okay. So when I was very young, banging on a broom, you know, <laughs> pretending it was a guitar, I was making up songs and fantasizing that they were records. And wow. So, you know... Uh, I, I was always writing songs, and, right? And, uh, as as uh, childish as, as they were, they were the best I could do. So, was this in your te- in your teens, Gene, or how? <laughs> no, nope, sooner than oh, earlier really? than that. Okay. Uh, the key here is that I have an older brother, Vincent, six years older, and that's considerable. But he was prime Beatles age. Okay. So he was very much aware when they came here, whereas I was barely know aware of anything (laughs) uh but uh, the beatles were it and really still are it for me in terms of uh uh, points of departure and inspiration uh and subsequently devouring the beatles catalog led me to earlier forms earlier styles american rockabilly and so on Mm -hmm. but back to your question uh, yeah, it happened at the same time. I learn a new chord, write a new song with that chord in it. Okay, know? and so so and so you I were, never I never separated it. So you were self you were self taught. Did you ever? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Well, my brother Vin mm-hmm. uh, showed me a few chords, uh, but then uh, I just kind of took off and taught myself, which is good and bad. Right, it's good because I have you know I was passionate about it and. Uh, in later years, I came to uh, regret not learning to read music and music theory, as I've, you know, been interested in playing more than four chords and right, right. songs that are a little more challenging. But what you know, what I find interesting because I can read a little bit of music, I, I can't read and play it uh, at the same time because it's like chewing gum and walking for me. Um, but it's interesting that you can go from both ends of the spectrum with that. But I would believe a person like yourself has such a well-trained ear that you know where to go um, with the chord changes and the progressions and that sort of thing. And that it's almost, you know, if one sense is down as far as the uh, uh, the music theory, that's tiny. I think the other ones have to grow. That's that's my theory, you know. I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. And uh, certainly a lot of really uh, sophisticated musicians never learn to read music. So you know, even like real hot jazz guys, you know. Right. But, but I mean, and, and, yeah, I, I, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could read music. <laughs> gotcha. Hey, <laughs> now, let, now. Let me let me ask you this: Did you were you mostly a solo act going out there, or did you jump into a band early in life? Or it was always bands. Great. Okay. The whole again, like the concept was brought down by the Beatles get some friends together and, and literally garage and basement bands and high school talent shows and, you know, uh, American Legion Hall that's having a talent show. All that was always a band. Get the band together. Sure. I never wanted to be 
uh, a front person. Oh, okay. I, I that that kind of was uh, fostered upon me and necessary evil to be the front person. What was the inertia of not wanting to be a front man? Well, uh, I have to go back again. Uh, my brother, my brother was older and uh, knew a lot more. He was the leader, and I, I was going to play the more like the Dave Davies to his Ray Davies. Okay. And, uh, or Carl Wilson to his Brian Wilson. And, uh, but uh, as things turned out, I got more involved with the real business uh, as a professional and uh, eventually became the leader of a group. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was like, uh, I'm more, my personality is more of a side person. At least it was then. Right, right. A long time ago. I've grown into the role uh, uh, over time, but uh, always a band. And uh, to this day, I mean, I build a group, Gene Casey and the Lone Sharks. And that's really just because, uh, you know, I'm the the remaining member and uh, uh, it's important for me to get my name out there to the folks. But uh, I still uh, feel most comfortable in a, a band setting. Gotcha. So what, where was uh, where'd you grow up? What was your hometown? Malvern, Long Island, oh, okay. New York. I was uh, born in Queens, but we, uh, we moved to Malvern, and I spent my first 18 years there. Okay. And, and I, I, I think it's a wonderful village. It still is. Yeah, it still is. Yeah. Now, is your brother still yeah. in music or no? Uh, no, he's, he's not. He was in the early incarnation of uh, the Lone Sharks okay. uh, before moving to Florida. And uh, so he's, he's not uh, playing. He, he'll he'll uh, sit in with us oh, on nice. occasion. Great. Why don't we do this? Let's take a quick break and uh, we'll explore a lot more with Gene Casey when we come right back. Stick with us, everybody. At the Long Island Sound, we're much more than a podcast. We're building a community. Please go to gigdestiny.com. Check out all our social media links. Subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. Please comment. Call the listener line. Tell us what you think, what questions we should ask, who we should have on the show. And most of all, we thank you for your generous support. And remember, support the artists who are guests on the show. Now back to the podcast. Hey, everybody. We're back with Gene Casey, who I consider the troubadour of the East End. Hey, Gene, we heard our audience heard, I love what I do uh, when we came into the program. How about you tell us a little bit about that song, how that came to be? Well, you know, it's a heavily double entendre, uh, as I mangle the French. (laughs) Uh, You know, if it starts out, you think you're thinking it's about like... uh, a man who's uh, proud of his job, and it, it is, but it's also a little naughty as well. <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's a it's a popular tune that we wrote, and uh, it gets a nice response. It was it was almost a kind of a line dance type song, a little faster though. So okay, <laughs> and, and to me, it's a nice mix of the the rock and roll influence and the kind of hardcore country influence and the twangy guitar and and the fun of it you know like, like chuck Berry's songs are very kind of sly tongue-in-cheek and you know uh so i'm proud of that song nice excellent it's and it's simple and simplicity is where it's at oh yeah no i i agree 100 percent. i mean when, when you talk about simplicity 
I think it just kind of grabs me more, you know, if I, especially when I can understand, this is wacky, but when I can understand the lyrics, it gives me time to appreciate it. And it's funny because now I'm listening to like Springsteen who does his songs more acoustically now and I get all the lyrics, you know, back in the day when we can open yeah. an album cover and actually read the lyrics, that's not yeah. as easily yeah. obtainable. And then you go, oh, I know what he meant when he hit B-52. He's, hit, he's playing a jukebox, you know, and that it... It never got. I never got it. You know, maybe I'm the only one who didn't get it. But um, that's something to be said about country, old country, Americana, whatever what, what you want to call it, is that the lyrics kind of ring true and the simplicity can draw a lot of different meaning for a lot of different people. You know, you you, you never mishear. I think mm-hmm. a, a country and western song. The lyrics, the the voices are always up front, and the words are always simple and clear. And every word and every line belongs. There's no extraneous stuff. Right. Everything is, it's very, uh, it's uh, a strict formula, hmm. uh, writing a country song. And I like that because, you know, just get to the point, back up the point, move along, you know, lyrically. Yep. And, and it's not easy to do because you there's no filler, no waste. You got to be... Every syllable, every syllable in a Hank Williams song is there for a good reason. There's nothing, uh, nothing wasted. Right. I found that I found that also with John Prine's music, the sim- the simplicity of it uh, and the choice of words, just kind of mm-hmm. to me, it kind of hung in my memory. They still hang in my memory, and that that to me is 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 a statement to say, hey, you know that that's a quality song. You know, if it can if it can linger. And have meaning to it, man. That's a double bonus. Let me ask you this, Gene. You know, you've you've written for music and uh, for films and television. And what's your process? Do you you know does the muse just kind of come to you and you act on it? Or and I know it's different for everybody and it's different for all occasions. It but is. I'm curious how how it strikes you and how you how you act upon it. I guess. Well, I I definitely belong to the camp of inspiration of getting an idea and jumping on it and and feverishly writing a song trying to finish it quickly that's pretty important when you're relying on inspiration mm-hmm. i'll hear someone will mention a phrase or will say something and i'll hear it say well that's a great title and that's you better drop everything you're doing and get to the nearest guitar and notebook and go with it. And that's, that's uh, the beauty of that, uh, that approach, but it's also impractical. <laughs> right. You know, you'll be in the middle of somewhere. You can't just jump up and leave and write a song. And uh, so, whereas in, uh, I spent some time in Nashville, and those guys, 9 o'clock, they punch in, sit down at the table with a notebook and they're ready to write. It's like a job. Right. And they they do it. And I, I've never been very good at that. However, working with these people, I started to be able to kind of write like I was uh, on the assembly line. Sure. You know? Like the Brill Building back and in the old days, right? Exactly. And, and there are a lot of nine to five writers and, and they write great songs and there are also people who don't write for three months and suddenly they write an entire album in six yeah, weeks. Yeah, 
You know, there, there's yeah. the discipline of it. I think that's the way your brain is wired, you know, um, and it's whether it's you wait for it and act on it. That's what separates you as a singer-songwriter from the rest of the world. Because I've, as I've said, I've written 10,000 phrases to 14 million songs and never acted on it. Where you guys act, seriously, you guys act on it and, and you, you piece it together and, and you woodshed it. Uh, to to put it together, and yet there there are others like you said that uh, you know nine to five they go down and like okay I'm going to get inspired I'm going to do it, um, just another another way of approaching it. I guess my question is this: when it came to I'm very interested in because one this this thing jumped out of your EPK that you did a music for Justified, which uh, was uh, a series that I thought was pretty good. I used to watch it with my late father-in-law. Yeah. We loved it, you know. Um, yeah, that's a good show. Did they come to you and say, hey, you know, we'd like you to write something for us? Or is that they found you and found, you know, one of they, your... Well, they found me. I had a, a publisher okay. uh, in L.A. And uh, a lady who's now retired, unfortunately. She, her, she was one of the last of the old-time publishers that would really hawk their, their catalog. And they would hustle it and, and call producers and musical directors mm -hmm. saying, what, what do you guys need? Well, I got this, I got this. And uh, we submitted a few songs to, to that show and they liked it and they grabbed it. And once that happened, other shows kind of followed. But it was a long process. It took like three years mm -hmm. to even get in the door. But uh, very often a, a, a movie or a TV show will have a song that they're using as they're filming and editing, like already like a, a famous song. And then they, they try to get the rights to it yep. and it's way too expensive. So what they do is they, they look for songs like that. And sometimes people are very good at writing like an imitation song, but uh, they'll say, do you have something that's kind of bluesy or swampy or uh, you know, like such, such and such an artist, and I'll send what I think might fit. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, but, you know, being that I'm a, a recording artist per se, I write for myself. You know, I don't really write for other singers. Uh, so, you know, if you want one of my songs, it's going to be me singing them, apparently. So, right. Uh, but, yeah, it worked out several times. It's funny you say that because a good friend of mine, Mike Nugent, you may know uh, Mike's band was in uh, The Devil's Advocate, you know, and Mike's a great player, most humble guy. He needs somebody to hawk his stuff. You know, he's just oh, it's, yeah. it's all about his music. And I'm saying that with great love. And they were in that movie. And it's exactly what you said. They were trying to get the rights to the, you know, uh, the Crossroads song or something like this with the devil thing. And yeah, and yeah, yeah they didn't yeah. want to pay the price. And they turned to the, the band that was in the bar for that, that scene and like, yeah, we got this, this and. They use two of their songs, and it's like, yeah. And then once, that's great. You know, they'll get a hundred and forty dollar check every now and then. You know, as a residual. Well, you know, those are nice surprises. It's you know, it's not a windfall. <laughs> you know. Uh, no, no. So. Uh, but it is. You know, it's nice to get that check. You know, every few months, and uh, it's just amazing how these things have life. You know, they're out there. Right, right. They're out, and and that 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 brings up another subject for me because. You know, we talked about everybody with the ability to have a studio in their phone, literally. Uh, mm. And the crowded, I would say it's a crowded market. And how do you, 
I, I think you may have an advantage because you've been playing for decades and you've made a name for yourself, uh, as far as I know, on Long Island. Um, so that gives you kind of a, a stepping stone to things. But what do you, what do, you do now to, to um, further your music and get it out, um, out into the ether? I go on podcasts. Excellent. And we did not speak about this before the show. That was a total setup. And Gene, congratulations. <laughs> it was like batting practice, man. So, yeah, I'm like Larry King. I'm just going to keep throwing you the softballs all, <laughs> all night long. <laughs> you know, we've come to this point where it's really impossible for folks like us to continue as we were. You know, a lot of uh, independent uh, performers, artists could print up 500 or 1,000 CDs right, and then sell a dozen at a gig, you know, and then 10 more or five more the next night. And by the end of the summer, you got to uh, print up another grand, you know? Yeah. And and it was a, a way of... Uh, of adding to, you know, the performance fee. It was a way of getting music to the fans, which is really the point. Mm -hmm. And it's also a way of, of uh, like a calling card. You give it to people in the business uh, with streaming. And uh, I mean, I'm still getting used to downloading, but uh, I, I, I'm really shocked that we live in, in a world where we don't have the fixed text hard copy of music. Right. Um, and I'm, I don't have any answers other than I'm just trying to join up and, uh, you know, get hip to what's going on. But it's really the, it's, it's, the odds are against, uh, mature, uh, independent artists, uh, unless you're like 21 and you're totally into TikTok and you got everything going and you get a billion hits, right? you know, but, uh, you know, Times do change. I get that, you know, but I, it is kind of strange not to be able to hold up an LP or a CD or a cassette yeah. even. And this is, this is my record. Take it home. Listen to it. You know? Yeah. You know, it was like now, so I, I, you know, I listen to Spotify and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think the, you know, my soapbox a minute, um, there's this whole push for content, content, content on the internet, whether it's Spotify or whomever, you know, and, Spotify is definitely taking advantage because you you put your music up and you'll get an eighth of a penny for every 5,000 plays. Or, I don't even know what their formula is, which is crazy. And, you know, they're making the, the big money and you're, you're getting, you're getting the pittance that's left over. And yet a man of my age, my wife and I love listening to live music. And you know what? It's, it's almost like buying local. This gives me an opportunity to support the local artist, go out, and one of my curiosities has always been, I never go up to somebody while they're playing. I'm sure people have, like, talked to you while you were singing, you know, in a bar, uh, is that curiosity of, gee, what's this guy's story? Or, you know, how did, you know, he writes such beautiful music. How does he do it? You know, that sort of thing. But now to um, try and compete out there, I, I think it comes down to the quality of the music as well. I think that that kind of carries you uh, in the long run, you know get you out of the weeds, so to speak. So um, anyway, not to be a downer about right, yeah. it, but that's... Uh... <laughs> no, you're not. Um, I mean, there should be uh, the, the, the pull to make the best possible music you can make. Uh, I mean, 
part of that is competition. Sure. There's a lot of people who want to do this and who think they can do it and, or do it, you know, on a weekend. Uh, so, so there's, there's a need to put out the very best you have and nothing but the, the very best just so possibly you can get noticed. Right. And, and so that's kind of a healthy thing. It forces the artist to, you know, no nonsense, really try to write the best song you can. It's a song that's undeniably good, you know, that people will have to kind of listen to. That's that's the, the quest. Um, and, you know, it's not like just a single and then 10 songs is filler. You can't, those days are gone. Now it's really just a single. It, I mean, yeah. When I'll put it, I'll put this to you. Mm-hmm. When's the last time that you bought or downloaded an entire album and listened all the way through? Maybe you do that all the time. I don't. No, I don't. I don't do it all the time. I do it for the the artists that I found out and say, you know what, I want to. Yeah. I want. I want this because it's definitely worth listening to. Um. I find it also interesting, you know, with, uh, with, you know, these EPs that are go out, you know, three songs, just artists banging out three songs just to get the content. It's almost like you have to keep making ice cream cones, you know, to, yeah. to, to say, oh yeah, they're still out. Oh yeah. They're still, they're still out there. You know, they're still trying yeah, yeah. To, to build an audience. That's true. It's gotta be extremely frustrating, but this leads me to this question. What uh, what made you move out east uh, into that market? Like, how did that come about for you? I was uh, I was living in the city early eighties. Manhattan or Brooklyn or I was in, I was in Manhattan. Okay. I was lucky enough in the village, and uh, there was a, a kind of uh, post punk rock and roll band I was in. Really? And yeah, you know, it was I say post punk in that we weren't punks, but we it was that period of the late 70s, early 80s, where early rock and roll was, was becoming noticed again. Okay. And as, as, I guess as a sort of result of the punk scene, which was similar to, I always felt like a lot of the punks sounded like the early kinks anyway, mm-hmm. and the early who. And, uh, but really not getting anywhere and, and you know, playing CBGBs and sp- Splitting thirty dollars wow. two o'clock in the morning, uh, doing that, and uh, my sister uh, Claire uh, was already out on the East End, in Sag Harbor. She was working for the author John Irving. Okay. Oh. And uh, so I got a job working as uh, on his uh, property, and uh, it was really supposed to be just for a few months, but then it just kind of, I ended up staying in Sag Harbor. This is now the late eighties, mm-hmm. and. Uh, commuting, you know, to the city. And I put together uh, my bar band. Okay. I, I said, because back then there were a lot of bars. Sure. And uh, drinking age was 18, you know, kind of uh, the Wild West back, back then. But well, I was able to drink at 18 as well. <laughs> yep. And I had the bar band, which was the Lone Sharks. It was just my, my idea, let's play early rock and roll, rockabilly, blues, and because there's a lot of bars out here, and, and that's exactly what happened. And suddenly, it became my main job. Wow. Suddenly, it got serious. We were being hired for parties and weddings and the whole Hampton scene. And I brought in, you know, increasingly serious professional musicians, and uh, it's kept that way. Wow. I'm going to ask you a left-field question. 
You ever play at Murph's Backstreet Tavern? Uh, yes, I, okay. I, I did play there. And, uh, Murph was my former father-in-law. Really? Tom Murphy. Tom Murphy. By the way, we did not discuss this before the show. This is, yeah. <laughs> just to give just to give a little background, yeah. and if you can give me more perspective, it'd be great. Um, so I was, yeah. I'm in the security business and I had to go out to Murph's Tavern, you know, and I was new in this company and I ran out to Sag Harbor from Huntington in a, almost Johnny on the spot, you know, and I'm looking for this place thinking it's a huge place and it's a block away from the police station, no parking lot. And it looks like a shithole, to be honest with you. And the guy who was the owner at that time was the nicest guy in the world. And he'd tell me about all the famous people that go there and stuff like that. And yeah. been around since the 1700s. And I was like, this is a cool place in Sag Harbor, you know, in the middle of, yeah. uh, you know, all these great buildings. There's this little tiny place. Um, Do you know what, roughly what year that was? Uh, when you I'm, went out I'm there? going back about seven years ago. Because the, okay, the gentleman then. That's after my time. Then the gentleman sold it again, yeah. sold it yeah. to that point. Yeah. But he said people would get yeah. gather in uh, the backyard with milk crates, and he would stand yeah. and he would stand yeah. at the door. And I said, "Well, how, you know, how do you how do you manage people?" He goes, "I greet everybody at the door, and we, everybody knows if you fight in this bar, you're banned." And and mm-hmm. he was really strict about it. And he would get all the kids who worked on the yachts down the block, and you know, people coming in ordering yeah. daiquiris, and they'd be like, "Yeah, you know, we yeah, no, we don't we don't serve daiquiris." <laughs> <laughs> you have a Bloody Mary, a whiskey, or a beer, and you know that's about it. Spent many, many, many hours there working and playing. Oh, really? And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, sure. Oh, that's great. That leads me into, by the way, for those who are listening, I'm going to uh, put links to uh, Gene, Gene's music and all the people we talk about. Uh, you'll see their websites and, and this tavern we're talking about. If you go to Sag Harbor, you have to go there because I'd love to tell the owner we're, we're throwing people his way. Not that he needs it, I'm sure. But uh, if you have a curiosity, uh, you can look in the chapter marks and you'll see more information about what we're talking about. So, um, In fact, uh, uh, just as an aside, yeah. uh, there are two, I think, two uh, framed cartoons that I drew for Murph that were should still be there on one of the posts. Nice. One's a, a Bill Clinton thing and the other is a, a, a milk carton. Uh, you know, have you seen this you know, yeah, kid? Right. I, yeah. I, I, I did two cartoons and he put them up there and I believe that they were still there post Murph and perhaps still there right now. I haven't been in there. Yeah, I'm sure. Time. Cause it, the place does look timeless when I, you know, where they still have everything there. It's quite the unique place. It's, it's Sag Harbor. I'd invite people to go there. I want to go there now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's talk about the next song that you, you brought to the table. Uh, How do I know you're not lying to me? Is that it? Yep. Yeah. Tell me yeah, just a little right. bit about that and then we'll have uh, the audience take a listen to it. Well, uh, you know, people have said, you know, that song reminds me of early Willie Nelson as well as uh, Gentle on My Mind, the John Hartford song. Mm. And uh, I wasn't really aware of the John Hartford similarity. It's, it, to me, it's kind of, a, kind of a generic country progression, although I did uh, alter the chord to a, a C major seventh, which you'll hear. For folks who don't know what chord that is, it's a very moody chord. Uh, but I wanted to write a song in the kind of classic uh, early 60s Nashville, uh, like guys like Harlan Howard and Hank Cochran and uh, uh, 
Roger Miller, early Roger Miller, mm-hmm. early Willie Nelson. They just wrote these compact, perfectly constructed songs, uh, like we were talking about earlier, sure. about not, not a, a syllable wasted. And so I, I tried to write what I thought was a Willie Nelson song. And of course, people think, say it sounds like Glenn Campbell. But, <laughs> of course, right. Uh, but no, it's, and I think it's a good phrase. You know, it's a, it's a long title, but, um, you know, when people are, are, have a history of being dishonest with you, like, how do you know you're saying you're sorry, but how do I know you're not lying right now? Exactly. <laughs> so that was the gist. Excellent. All right. Hey, everybody, check it out. We'll be right back after the song. I have lived and I have learned As far as I'm concerned I'm all the wiser now Going through the changes And the phases and the stages with you The many times I've been burned Still you return to take another bow How do I know that you're not just lying to me now? How do I know you're not playing that same song again? Such a pretty tune, have I forgotten too soon how it ends? have changed and you will arrange to make it up somehow how do i know that you're not just lying to me now for the time here on earth is it really all the fuss and fight Hearts that are broken and Words that are spoken In the angry night You beg and you plead You say it won't lead To another round How do I know that you're not just lying to me now How do I know that this time you will really be true I've heard it before and if I hear it once more Don't know what I'll do That you care And you would not dare Break another vow How do I know that You're not just lying to me now How do I know that You're not just lying to me now
Hey, Gene, that was a great song. Thanks for bringing that to the table. And uh, you had mentioned quickly that you've done some work in Nashville. I'm re- really interested in your experiences down there. Well, I, I always uh, would would take the trek to Nashville and to Memphis when I could, just like a pil- pilgrimage. Okay. Because uh, so much of, of the music I love and that I'm inspired by comes from Memphis and Nashville. And uh, since I was a teenager, I would every a few years I would take the drive down there. Mm. So I've seen a change, you know. Oh God, yeah. Uh, it's Disneyland now. And, well, yeah, but uh, when in, around 1979, it was like uh, Skid Row, like the Lower Broadway in Nashville. Wow. And that's why they moved the Grand Ole Opry out of out of the city. Uh, and then it, it over in the 80s and 90s, it started to get cool, and and uh, BR five four nine were playing, and all these honky tonks started to open up. It was very cool. But now you're right. Now it's it's way over the top. It's like party town and oh, yeah. it's we like went, Bourbon Street. We went last October. Yeah, loud. Yeah, we went last October. We have a couples that we go on trips with. And it's <laughs> I thought it was a joke. It's a bridesmaid capital, you know, and everywhere you look, can, you can have a lot of fun. Uh, but everywhere you look, there's, uh, you know, a four-story rooftop bar with some, yeah, some no, country. No, I, I don't get it. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, don't, I know people who work that circuit and they're good friends of mine and all that. And, uh, and, I just can't relate to it. It's it's like a nightmare. I wouldn't I I I wouldn't want to play there. Yeah. To be honest with you. Not not in that environment that you just described. Right, exactly. Exactly. But uh, the business is there though. And uh it's not just country music. You got like Peter Frampton lives there. Hmm. You know, it's uh it's a major music city and a lot of songwriters and musicians live there, you know. It's like in, in L.A., everyone has a screenplay, but in Nashville, everyone has a song. Right. And uh, you get some of the greatest guitar players in the world are playing for tips. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you know, uh, I'm used to being a big, big fish in a small pond, you know. Uh, but I went most recently there as a songwriter. Okay. Through, again, through my publisher who set up my meetings. It was kind of like a series of blind dates okay. with songwriters ranging from young hotshot guys to, uh, you know, grizzled veterans of the scene. Mm. And, uh, we would just, you show up and I'm like, hello, you, you know, t- tell a little bit about yourself. And then, so what do you got? You got a title, you got an idea for a song. Well, I've been working on this. I got this guitar. And for the next few hours, you, you just kind of woodshed and, uh, you just try to come up with something. And that's how these guys do it. And that's why, you know, uh, co-writing is, is really the, the way to go in that town. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I had a, a guest on the program, a guy named Charlie Cullis, who is from Laddingtown, originally from Maspeth. When I first heard his music, I'm like, this sounds like a 25-year-old country guy singer, right? He's not. I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. But he explained the same thing that you explained about co-writing and going down there and meeting a gentleman. And he had this idea of, hey, let's, the song is, let's bring this party back to my hotel room. And they, he knocked it out with a, a pretty famous songwriter, and, and they worked it through and put the formula together, and that was that. That was kind of you know, an interesting take on how to approach music, you know. Well, it, I learned a lot. Oh, yeah? I tell you, I mean, I learned... Uh 
again, about construction. And, and these guys really have rules about, well, you can't say the title here. You have to wait here. You know, oh, interesting. it's a real, real, oh yeah. It's a, it's a real formula in, in a good sense. It's a, it's a tried and true approach. Um, and co-writing, which I really had not ever done much of, mm-hmm. uh, if co-writing is very freeing because you're not as married to the song as you would be by yourself, uh, where you're like, oh, you know, this is my song, and don't touch it. Right. When you're co-writing, you're you're you let it go, you bounce back, and you don't get so hung up on this part, you know. And 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 also you don't take it quite as seriously in terms of life and death. It's like we'll just see what we can come up with, and that allows ideas to flow, uh, ideas that you might have not even entertained before if you were writing by yourself. Mm-hmm. Now you're just going back and forth, and uh, that's how a lot of that stuff gets done. And uh, yeah, I worked with a whole bunch of different people, and just a few of the songs. Uh, you know, the thing is. If you really got a good song, then you got to invest money into a, a demo, and a demo is virtually like releasable. It's that good. A demo okay. has to be that good, right? And then you shop it around to uh, you know, to producers and artists, and then invariably the artist wants to get in on it. You know, uh, so uh, I can't boast any hits that came out of that uh, experience. But other than I learned a lot, and a few of the songs are kicking around still. But what happened was COVID kind of happened, and the idea, uh, I couldn't, I had to curtail my, my, my trips. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you also, to be really honest, I realized that if I wanted to make this really happen as a songwriter, I would have to live there. Mm. And I would have to pay a lot of dues. And uh, at this point in my life, you know, I, I love where I work and I have uh, a great band and I have a nice following. And, uh, you know, the idea of moving to Nashville to compete with uh, thousands of others, I said, okay, I'm going to stick where I'm at. Right. Work work this field and see what it produces. And I got a question for you. When you said the artist wants in on it, what do you really mean by that? Oh, I'm sorry. I, well, this, you know, copyright is where it's at. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where, you, well, at least in the old style of how royalties were paid, songwriting credit is, uh, that's where it's lucrative. Uh, so every singer down there with any pull will try to get in on the uh, credit and, you know, and either legitimately by cont- contributing. Or sometimes just or by arm put the name on it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but that's how it's done. Yeah, because yeah. that's really where the money is, or used to be. I don't know where the money is now. I think it's selling T-shirts. <laughs> right. But, right. Yeah. The, mar- but, the, yeah, the market mean, changes. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this. I heard you on WUSB. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I forgot who you were filling in for, but I, was, I thought it was a great show. And let, let, let me preference, preference this, too. In that my wife had a butcher shop in Massapequa Park, big old time country music fan. And when the country music stations left New York, she was heartbroken. And I was a traveling salesman and I'm like, 
I don't know what's wrong with New York, but every other state in the world plays country music. Like, what the hell happened? So anyway, just that was an aside, but uh, it was nice to hear you on WSB. So tell us a little bit about that. I'm not just uh, uh, filling in. I now am uh, the alternate host. Excellent. Every other Sunday. Great. And uh, that's been, it's fun. It's fun to do. It's, it's, uh, it's made me reassess uh, the music. Uh, You know, it's, I get to play country music for one hour and, and I try to present a wide variety. Uh, and I could play myself, but I haven't given into that temptation. <laughs> There's too many other things. But yeah, it's it's fun to finally be on that side of the microphone as a DJ. Well, I can, I can certainly send you a few Americana independents. You probably know these people already. Um, that do well, great. Actually, you know... I would wouldn't mind that because I am deficient on really new and really good stuff. Okay, you know, I, I'm, I know the classic stuff, so I want to get some of the newer things. It's good for me as a writer and a, as a radio guy. Two two people come to mind off the top of my head. One is a, a guy named Peter Mancini who's done work. Uh, he was in the USB concert. Pete. Great guy, great guitarist. Another humble guy. I also ran into this trio out of Brooklyn, of all places, that do bluegrass. Uh, they're called Damn Tall Buildings. They've been around for 10 years. Uh, and one guy comes from Montana. They call him Montana, of course, because they're not very creative with names. Uh, gal comes from, uh, I think, Philly. And uh, the third guy comes from New Hampshire. And they all settled in Brooklyn together, which just kind of blew my mind, you know. Yeah. Brooklyn is the center of the world for those who don't know <laughs> right now. <laughs> but uh, they've got some really great music, and it just kind of. T- I know Pete. Yeah, yeah Pete's a nice, yeah, really nice guy. Really, he is a good guy. Really, really good guy. So um, and then, who did I just have? I just had uh, another guy. Who just came out was uh, a guy named um, Gregory Dwayne, and uh, Gregory Dwayne is from Manhattan. He was really, he was a really cool cool guy with a really unique voice and this other guy who's on facebook all the time uh dante mazzetti have you heard of him yes i have he's yeah i I think he was uh, included in some kind of sag harbor music festival yes he was yeah because peter james was there and and he had mentioned that as well and um he's a new york city firefighter and his he's he's the one who kind of like grabbed the the ferris wheel at the right time with the social media in doing, um, doing his music on a on a balcony in in, in Chelsea. You know? I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's kind of it's I don't know it's kind of cool, but it's yeah. You got to get out. You know, you got to keep working and changing and get out of your comfort zone. I guess, but get out of your comfort zone but stay in your wheelhouse. I guess. Hey, that's a song, brother, right there. <laughs> get the pen. I see he's getting the pencil out now, everybody. I can see it. <laughs> Get well, let me tell you a quick a comfort zone story. Do we have a moment? We've got all the time in the world. I'm enjoying this. I, one of, uh, I'll tell you the story. I was driving to Nashville, and I was, uh, I had a lot of trepidation. I was nervous about what what am I trying to do here? I have all these appointments with these young guys and songwriters, and I don't know if I could hang with these people. Okay. I am, and I'm on the phone with my wife driving, and I'm like. And she said, uh, it's okay to be out of your comfort zone. And so I hung up. And yes, I think I hung up and I wrote, I wrote down comfort zone. That could be a good, good title. 
And then I had a, a songwriting session like nine o'clock the next morning. Can you name me a Blake Shelton, right? Okay, That's sure. a big guy, yep. right? Is he married to a famous? Yeah, Gwen, Gwen Stefani from No Doubt. Okay. Well, the guy I was writing with was, was friends with Blake Shelton. Okay. And he was like, we got to write something for Blake Shelton. And I said, well, I'm, I have this song idea called Comfort Zone. He goes, dude, that's a great idea. Comfort Zone, Comfort Zone. All right, what rhymes a Comfort Zone? I was like, well, I said, I, don't, I thought I was a Rolling Stone. Dude, Rolling Stone Blake is a huge Rolling Stones fan. He's going to love this. He was so excited. I haven't heard anything from right. Blake or Gwen or anyone. But uh, that's, yeah, that's, that came from a conversation with my wife about comfort zones and how to get out of that. All right, so I'm not going to get in on that one when that goes. No, no, you're not part of that. <laughs> that's why you wanted to get it on the record. I get it. <laughs> that is cool, man. So let me. So when you get these appointments, is it your your producer, your promoters, like plugging you into these appointments of? you know, kind of networking and going it that way. And do you meet in the studio? Do you meet at their house or, you know, paint the picture you for can, me? You, uh, both. Okay. You meet either at their house or on Music Row. There's all these offices. Sure. And the cool thing was in this experience for me, again, I, I used to, I used to go down to Nashville and just kind of haunt and walk around and take in the sights, which all these cool things that they're destroying now, mm -hmm. tearing down all these cool buildings that, you know, Gene Vincent recorded here and Buddy Holly recorded there. It's gone. <sighs> but uh, anyway, there's all these uh, skyscraping uh, offices. And, you know, I used to walk by there and say, oh, okay, that's that publishing company. That's that record company. But it was nice to finally be on the other side indoors in these offices, finally, to see how that worked. And uh, so that was kind of gratifying. Hey, have you ever been inside the door? Have you ever been to Martin's in Nashville? Martin's? Uh, the, the, the guitar? Not the, it, it's a, there is a connection with guitar company. It's a, um, when you first walk into the place, it's off the beaten track. It's not like in the center of town, but it looks like a regular takeout. And then you go up the steps and the, the whole place opens up where there's a stage and everything else. Really kind of a cool place. Um, Boy, no, I, I, that's not familiar. That yeah, Martin's. Cool, it's like Martin's looks like a little takeout place with maybe twenty picnic tables in, and then you see this huge staircase, and boom, you walk up there, and there's a stage that opens up to a back road, and um, yeah, we had fun there anyway um, at Martin's. You also mentioned Memphis. Memphis is one of my favorite towns. Beale Street. They've commercialized to a certain degree, but you still got you still get a lot of great blues music. You know, all the open air taverns and bars and stuff like that on Beale Street, and and uh, B.B. Yep. King's is a great place to hear music, you know, um, Sun Records and everything else. So um, do you get have you gotten to Memphis more uh, often as well or here and there? Whenever I, I had an extra day in a full tank of gas, I would drive down to Memphis. I just felt I, I needed I needed to sure. connect with that. And I, there's a spirit in the air. I know it's kind of corny, but I feel it. Uh, and the look, and you know, it's it's a very old town now, and the old Memphis is virtually like right. crumbling, and you know the d disparity of wealth and poverty is is pretty severe, and uh, you know it's uh, it's a hardcore town. You know, you got to be on your on your toes, uh, but uh, you know, 
I totally uh, idolize and, and revere, you know, that Sun Records era and, uh, you know, the, the Stax Records and the Soul Legacy is just so powerful. And uh, just being there, you feel like you, there's some, there is right. something in the or air. Or in the water there or something, is. right. The, yeah. It, it, it's there and it's the look. You see these houses and these shacks and these cool old buildings, these theaters, and you just soak it up, man. It's like, this is where it comes from. And it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah my impression of Memphis is very interesting. Same thing as far as a lot of things that are run down in a tough town and you go on the outskirts of Memphis and it's like extreme wealth, you know, Germantown, all these other places. Like what yeah. do they do? They took, took yeah, all the yeah. wealth, wealthy people left and, and then they built Bill Beale mm -hmm. street and they built a nice, triple uh, a, um, uh, baseball park. Um, and it's nice. It's a nice place to bring yeah, your family yeah. and listen to music for sure. Have you ever seen a, a, a movie by Jim Jarmusch mystery mm. train rings uh, a bell, but early eighties. Okay. Mr. Well, uh, if you ever get a chance to see that, and it, it's all—it's like three or four different vignettes all take place at the same time, one night oh, okay. in Memphis, and this is pre when Memphis was not being built up yet, where Beale Street was like a bombed out right. block, uh, and it's a very hip movie and great music. Um, and that vibe is, uh, if you see that movie and go to Memphis, you can feel that vibe. But you get as Memphis. Well. All right, I'll have to put a link in for it. And let's do this. Let's switch gears again. Yeah. Let's talk about the third song that you brought, Tony Joe White. Tell us about Tony Joe White. Oh, that's, that's good. That's a good, good uh, segue. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> and by the way, none of this, none of this is scripted, anybody. So just, you know. We come upon these things by the good grace of God, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still the uh, I'm still at Murphs <laughs> right now. So, well, come back, come Tony. I mean, come back, Gene. Tell us about tell us about Tony Joe White. Kind of fill us in on that person that that song, and we'll let the audience have a gander up. Well, uh, Tony Joe White. Now he's one of those artists that was more popular overseas, in Europe and Australia and Japan. He was a star. Whereas back home, he was just a vague, uh, you know, oh, Tony Joe White, Poke Salad Annie. That's, he wrote that. That was his hit before Elvis heard it. And he wrote uh, Rainy Night oh, yeah, in Georgia, yeah. which was the beautiful song Brooke Benton did. He wrote Steamy Windows for Tina Turner. And he was uh, from Louisiana. And, uh, you know, he, he would have thought he was like this 200-pound uh, black dude, the way he sounded, but he was this uh, lean, mean uh, honky-tonk boy from hmm. Louisiana and played guitar like Jimmy Reed, John Lee Hooker, and Lightning Hopkins. And he wrote these swamp songs, man, about alligators and, you know, uh, r real southern kind of gothic okay. bluesy songs. Uh, the most famous being uh, Poke Salad Annie. Uh, and I, I've always admired him and uh, got to see him play a few times. He would come to town just uh, with a drummer, sometimes by himself. And what struck me was that he could have been a star. He was a great-looking dude. In, like in the late 60s, he could have gotten probably a, you know, a TV show like Glenn Campbell, but he he knew he wasn't cut out for that, and he stuck to mm. his guns. And he carved out a career 
with just a you know a few a few known songs, but just enough to get by. And he would travel around. He'd go to Europe and uh, where he was you know uh, well regarded. Uh, and I knew he was getting old, and uh, I just wanted. I felt like I'm going to write a a song. That's not, uh, it's a tribute to him. It's called Tony Joe White, but it's not like the mm-hmm. life story. It's more about what he means to me in terms of sticking to your guns, being true to your art, and just not letting anything get in the way of being real and uh, authentic. And, uh, and so, because some people think I'm trying to write his life story, I'm not. I'm not just, I'm, I'm using. It's kind of impressionistic, right. I suppose, uh, as opposed to a literal uh, tribute. And uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the recording. And it was uh, recorded before he passed away, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, he did get to hear it, though. We did send it to his manager. We know it got to Tony, but we oh, never heard wow. back. But I know he heard it. And uh, so it's, uh, again, it's, 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 you don't know, have to know anything about Tony Joe White to hear the song. It's just about uh, uh, surviving. Well, the good thing is our audience is going to know both your song and have a link to Tony Joe White. So let's have a listen to it. And we'll be right cool. back after the song. Hang with us, everybody.
Hey everybody, we're back. Hey Gene, do you want to tell me a little bit more about that song about Tony Joe White? And well, that was a, a ambitious production, as, as as you'll hear with the the horns and the harmonica and the slide guitars. And uh, I was very proud to have uh, Andy Burton on organ and electric piano. Andy works with uh, uh, Miami Steve and Zant, oh, okay. Disciples of Soul. Sure. And uh, he's actually touring with Cindy Lauper. But Andy and I go way back to the Wild Rose Cafe in Bridgehampton in the uh, early 90s. And it was great to have him uh, on that song. I think he adds a real cool kind of churchy, swampy flavor on the B3 organ. Nice. That's great. That's uh, that's yeah. what's great about networking over the decades, you know, where you can in many cases, pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I think you'd be perfect for that. And most people are pretty generous if they have the time to make it, you know. And, and did they do, do you do this all in the studio in person? Or Well, it's funny you should – I was just about to say uh, that was – he phoned it in. You know, he did it <laughs> at, at his studio. I sent him the track on the – you know, you send the file. And then he added the organ and he sent it back to us. So even though I, I do see and work with them quite a bit, that's how we did it. And that is a, how most people are doing their records these days. Right. Doing it at home and sending files. And uh, yeah, and that's good and bad, you know. But uh, for a musician like Andy and myself, we've worked together so often. We know he's, he's, he's in the room anyway, so to speak. I got you. You, can, you, you can, can kind of figure out each other's spontaneity in just him listening yeah. to your track. Where I would suppose right. somebody new to it, you know, you you may rely on that a little bit more. So what so yeah. what are you producing now? Where what direction are you taking with your music? Well, uh, since the pandemic, uh, I've been write, I wrote a lot of songs in that kind of those dark days, mm -hmm. and uh, I have I have enough for an album, but I, I'm gonna wait 
uh, I'm going to release a few singles and then, you know, do put it out as a, 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 an album. Uh, but, you know, I'm doing it because I have to. It's <laughs> not like the world is demanding it. It's not like my livelihood depends on it. Um, on, you know, songwriting royalties. But my state of mind, you know, like I mentioned to you earlier, I, I picked up the guitar and I, I wrote a song with the first two chords I knew. I've been writing. I can't stop writing. Hmm. So I have to do it. It's just, in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a calling of sorts or it's just, it's who I am. It's the way that I walk and, and think. Uh, so I'm just... You know, I take a hit uh, having to record it myself. I don't have a record company foot in the bill. Uh, and I don't do GoFundMe stuff. I just, you know, I work, work, work with my band. And I have a, a great situation in my, my marriage, and my home. Mm -hmm. uh, very supportive. And I do the best I can with my budget. And I try to get the music out there. So that's what I'm doing. I, I can't stop. Even though it doesn't make sense, people say that, you know, you're wasting your time. <laughs> Even you know, like big acts don't want to bother. But I, I have to bother because uh, that's how I, I roll. I heard that's the way you roll. I, you know, when you think about how you're wired from a very young age in this writing right. mode, I heard this and I can't attribute to who I heard it from, but the artist has a conversation with his audience over a long period of time, the conversation has changes in many cases because sometimes you have to morph a little bit and grow, right? Yeah. But you have that need to be heard and continue the conversation. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hearing. I like that. There's no good reason for it. Yeah, maybe you think I'm wasting. Here's another song idea. Maybe you think yeah, I'm wasting my time, but it you're really not. You know, and I guess what you may know in some instances when people come up to you and they say icing on the cake, when they say, hey, you know, that really hit me, you know, or that is. and and there'll be the 10 million times it's hit somebody at home or listening to it that you may never know, but you put it out there. And because you were uh, tedious about that obsession of continuing the conversation mm -hmm. that uh, you may never know the benefit of, of your art on people. I think that's exactly right about the conversation because I'm having a conversation with the ghost of Hank Williams. I'm Ooh. having a conversation with John Lennon. I listen to their music and I'm responding to their music and I'm putting it out there. It's going around this room, you know, of, mm -hmm. of voices and uh, I'm contributing even in, in my small way. I'm contributing to the, discussion and uh whatever it is discussion is of, of music and life and impressions uh by recording and uh trying to distribute my music i'm i'm just a small voice but i i feel it's getting heard and i you know i i play live and i i have people who request my songs and i can see people singing along they know the lyric i've had my songs played at people's weddings. I've had my songs played at people's funerals. Hmm. They come up to me and tell me that this song means a lot to them. So that's, that's the reward, man. I mean, that's like, I'm part of this conversation. That's very much alive. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. And let's talk about the, the fourth song. The last song that you brought to the table, which may tie into the songwriting is, Hey, Mrs. Troubadour. And when I started this episode, 
I gave a, the simple definition of a, a troubadour being a poet, you know, bringing lyrics to music. So tell me about that song. Well, it's a, it's a song about, it's very evident. Uh, it's about the non-glamorous life of a, of a playing musician, of a working musician, getting home the wee small hours, uh, surviving, uh, you know, drunk drivers, cops, potholes, your own uh, uh, wanting to fall asleep at the wheel mm. and, uh, you know, getting home and, and your your wife is uh, waiting for you. She's been half asleep, you know, kind of keeping an eye on the time, looking, hoping I get home. It's about, uh, you know, having to sleep late, missing most of the day because you're resting up for the night. Uh, it's about the van breaking down and having to borrow a car. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, a man and woman just trying to make uh, his career work. And I know a lot of musicians can relate to this. It's firsthand. And uh, I just thought it, it'd be worth kind of acknowledging. This is, uh, it's not all glitter and uh, <laughs> right. not that, uh, anyway, you know, that's obvious. But uh, I think it's, it's a true song. It comes from a true place. Great. All right, let's listen to Hey, Mrs. Troubadour. And we'll be right back after this. Crumbles $20 bills Laying by the windowsill A guitar pick and an empty glass of wine these are the things he leaves behind The life of the party in recline I tiptoe through your busy day Let him sleep the day away Always keep an eye on the time Take his favorite shirt up of the line An early evening coffee Rise and shine Hey, Mrs. Troubadour What have you been waiting for? Did you ever think it'd be this way? Hey, Madam Superstar Can he take the other car? The man broke down another town to play Dear Mrs. Millionaire Have you you know he'll make it up to you someday, someday, someday. All alone at 3 a.m., one eye on the clock again, praying that he makes it home alive. Thought you heard him coming up the drive Next thing you know, it's almost five Hello, babe, it's late, I know Are you all right? How did it go? The king of rock and roll has arrived Well, it was just another dive Just another night to survive Hey, 
everybody we're back with gene casey and i just want to tell you quickly we do have a listener line where you can leave your comments about this show or any any artists and guests that we've had it's 631-800-3579 leave your voicemail be an mp3 tell us if we can use that and i share it with the artist to let them know uh, how you feel about their music and and the conversation and if you want more information on things and and with that um gene what's your website Oh, it's a toughie. GeneCasey.com. G-E-N-E, GeneCasey.com. Has my my calendar, which is pretty full, I'm happy to say. So check out where we'll be playing. We'll have the links in the chapter marks as well as 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 at the GigDestiny.com site. We'll also have the links when this uh, gets published to, um, you know, you can find this episode everywhere. But you also mentioned you have some sort of Christmas gig coming up in December as well. Yeah, there's a, a the beautiful Suffolk Theater in Riverhead. We've done this for about six or seven straight years with one break for the pandemic. We, we okay. didn't do it. it. They call it a rockabilly Christmas, and it's uh, we're we're part of it. Gene and the Lone Sharks, and uh, the headliner is Jason Jason D Williams. Okay, who's uh, from Memphis. He's kind of like uh, if you combine Jerry Lee Lewis and the Tasmanian Devil, <laughs> it would be Jason D. Williams on the piano, and he's he's a lot of fun. And we've been doing this uh, Christmas themed uh, rock and roll show for I guess six or seven years, and oh, that's, great. that's uh, December 9th in uh, Suffolk Theater. It's a nice theater. Yep, that's in that's in Riverhead. Uh, mm-hmm. So on the 9th of, anyway, we'll have it in, we'll have it in on our yeah. chapter marks and I hope to be there uh, and, and, and see yeah, you out let, there. Let me know. And uh, let me tell you, Gene, I've had so much fun. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Long Island Sound. Um, you've definitely added to the Long Island Sound over the decades that you played. I wish you all the best out there. And um, I end my podcast this way uh, from my friend, Bob, who told me, you know, we can account for what we have in the bank and other things can never account for what time we have here on earth. And the fact that you gave me your time um, a little over hour here, plus the prep in getting this interview together. I'm, I'm very grateful. Very grateful. I am grateful as well. I appreciate the, the, the conversation and the, the support that you're showing and we need people like you. Thank you. Thanks for everyone listening out there. All right, brother. We'll hear you every other Sunday on WUSB, the Stony Brook Station. And Gene, I really look forward to meeting you in person. All right? All right, buddy. Be well, brother. Take care, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. 
please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Till next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. We really love to hear from you. And call our listener line at 631-800-3579. Again, thanks so much. Be well.